and I address the practice of polygamy. Now, the reason we're going to redress that sermon, or I'm going to redress that sermon this morning, is due to uh, comments that are related to that sermon, and certainly uh, asking for clarification and understanding. So this morning, as I read from various passages of Scripture, the purpose of this morning's message is to dispel the idea that there ought to be or can be or should be any Christian practice of polygyny. Polygyny being the practice that a man is able to have more than one wife. So, let us pray. Now, blessed Father, do come and add your power and blessing to this word this morning. Lord, we are your humble servants. And Lord, as your humble servant, we, I pray for clarity, boldness, and sympathy. Lord, to those who may struggle and Lord, who may be hurting under such cruel ways and practices. We certainly pray, O oh Lord, for Your rescuing grace. And for us this morning, as we listen, as we revisit these passages, we ask and pray, Father, that You would help us see and understand that there are many ways in which we can indulge, sinfully indulge ourselves. And that we might learn how to to take the Scriptures and use them profitably and wisely and grow in grace. Lord, we pray and ask this, not because we are worthy or even capable in and of ourselves to do any of it, but because You are our glorious God and Father and You desire to bless us and mature us and, Lord, bring us to maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and... Open them to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read from um, uh, two other places in Scripture and so that we develop, if you will, a train of thought through the whole counsel of God's Word. But Genesis chapter 2 is going to be the first passage of Scripture I read this morning. And I want to begin reading chapter 2 at verse 8. I'm not going to ask for you to stand because we have a good bit of reading to do. But nevertheless, our hearts and our minds, we ought to honor the Word of God, show Him reverence and deference as we listen to His Word. Hear now the Word of God. Verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, and I will make him a helper. Suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that, at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now take your Bibles and turn them open to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, though the whole chapter is important to us, 
I'm only going to read from verse 12, uh, verse 10, and through the end of the chapter, and want you to recognize the, the covenantal language and the rebuke that God is giving to his people, particularly the priesthood. Listen to the words starting at verse 10, Malachi 2. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar with the Lord, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. For you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them are Where is the God of justice? Our final passage that we will read will come from Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate." And then they said to him, Then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it, was, it has not been that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that ends the reading of the Word of God. Well, brothers and sisters, we are at a place where I think reasonably we can address this particular sexual perversion of polygyny. And I say reasonable because we have, uh, the last couple of weeks, we have 
looked at Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, if you remember, we dealt with a category of sins that God says are the results of sinning against God, turning from God, abandoning God, if you will, putting God away, choosing not to bless God as Creator, but in various ways going after the creation and worshiping and desiring and longing for the creation and not the Creator. When that happens, there are consequences to those decisions. We spoke last week of that inherited consequence in nature itself. When God is rejected, there is a consequence to that rejection. It's inherited. It's it's in the fabric of God's creation. To, for Him to be rejected and denied is for one to do great harm or, or any man or woman to do great harm to themselves. You remember the statement, to deny God is to deny self. To deny and reject God as God is to bring great harm and suffering into one's life. Now that may not be aware of it. Brothers and sisters, seriously and frankly, many people learn to live in misery. Many people learn and and adapt their lives to misery and all kinds of, 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 of sinful things. The book of Romans speaks to this category of sins that I believe could be related sexually and explicitly certainly addresses homosexuality, but that's not all he addresses. Right there in verse 31, Paul brings out this consequence that when they, when they give themselves over to idolatry, that they become without understanding. Listen to this, without understanding, untrustworthy, right? Untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. All of these particular sins in verse 31 can be found in, in those who might take the Bible and twist Scripture in order to promote some indulgence in their lives, like polygyny, or polyandry, or any other form of polygamy, that God's Word does not command. When you think about the companionship and the marriage covenant itself, I want you to consider the word untrustworthy. That that untrustworthiness becomes becomes the norm of the day when when families and nations and communities find themselves under the judgment of God. People become less faithful. In every facet of life, they become untrustworthy. But particularly in those most important areas like marriage, church membership, community vows and promises made to uphold and and keep the peace and protection of society. People have no problem when, when, when there is a darkness falling upon the land. People have no problem forsaking trustworthiness. They have no problem not being loyal. They don't have a problem with it. Unloving. Now I mentioned this because it's important to note that there is a small portion 
of professing believers that are eager and desirous of promoting the practice of polygyny. And I bring this out and I mention several articles and I even quote from several books in the sermon I preached 10 years ago. We're not going to do that this morning. But what is telling after going back and listening to that sermon is how in some ways prophetic it was. That sermon was preached before the legalization of homosexuality, of homosexual marriage. And what we've seen 10 years later is the continuing decline of sexual purity and chastity, right? Paul addresses that. Paul says in a declining culture that's under the wrath of God that descends from heaven, there are going to be these characteristics that mark this culture and unloving and unfaithfulness is two of them. It's interesting how people can redefine love and oftentimes they call cruelty love. And we're going to look at that. There's another passage of Scripture that Paul, where Paul writes to Timothy and, and Paul brings out these sins that categorize a, a, a time that he calls these are perilous times. Perilous means they are desperate, they are dangerous, they are unstable. And part of that is found in 2 Timothy 3 verses 4 and 5. Listen to these Sins, treacherous. The word treacherous has the idea of covenant breaking. Backstabbers. Men and women who can't and will not keep their word, they change their mind at the change of the wind, so to speak. They, these are the, the, the people that make promises only to break them the next day. And feel no remorse about it. They're treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure. Right? Rather than lovers of God. Holding a form of godliness although they have denied its power. The Bible says, avoid such men as these. There are really two words that I want to bring to your attention as I address this sin. The first one is indulgence. Indulgence. Paul mentions that. That's, that's implied in this list of sins that I just read to you. The person that is indulgent. What does indulgence mean? It means it's the... Um, the permitting of a practice or an enjoyment to lack constraint or control. It's a negative word. I mean, it, it is sometimes used in a positive way, such as a parent sometimes indulging a child with a piece of candy. That's, that's you know, nothing wrong with that unless it becomes the normal habit and the child learns that they can get their way no matter what and there's no discipline whatsoever. But there, there can be a positive sense of that word. But, but primarily, the word indulgence is negative. It's a word that conveys a, a lack of control, a, a lack of constraint, an indulgence of sinful pleasure, sensual pleasure. There's another word that I think we need to consider as we look at this, these passages, and that's the word gratification. Gratification, that's the act, if you will, of pleasing oneself or pleasing another. It's this uh, state of mind, the taste of an appetite, the, the gratification of senses and desires of the soul and the heart. And those two words describe perfectly those who wish to indulge in the practice of polygyny. Gratification. 
indulgence. Now, why are these two words descriptive of that practice? Even though we find some biblical characters in the Old Testament that practiced polygyny. As we will see that those men who practiced polygyny sinned against God. They weren't, that practice was never condoned by God. Never has been condoned by God. That practice has been at best tolerated by God. Seeking to bring such a constraint and a hardship upon those who practiced polygyny that it would be put away. Now let me address a myth right up front. And that myth is this, and it's often used to support this idea, and that is the myth that, well, polygyny is practiced everywhere and has always been practiced everywhere throughout history. That's not true at all. Polygyny was not practiced wholesale throughout Scripture. And it was never practiced wholesale throughout the people of God. And it was not practiced wholesale throughout all of the pagan nations or the Gentile nations. And it's never been practiced wholesale throughout the world. Though there have been pockets and people and groups and sects that have from time to time practiced having multiple wives or multiple husbands. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a day and time where there is a laxity surrounding sexual desires. It's a cultural phenomenon, if you will. I say phenomenon because it's, it, it, it's pandemic. It's, it's phenomenal in the sense it's coming like a tidal wave upon us. We're surrounded by it. There's, there's hardly a sitcom. There's hardly a, a program. Shows that you... How many times have we sat down to watch a series of television shows only after being sucked into the storyline there is some deviant sexual character in there? And oftentimes, and even more so as I've been told, I'm not much on the story itself, but have been told that they're getting younger and younger and younger where now we have 13-year-olds who are claiming to be homosexual and, and the parents having to struggle with allowing their 13-year-old son to have a male partner, boyfriend. That's deviance. We're almost forced to accept it. If we don't accept it, we're considered narrow-minded and out of touch with the times. We live in a day, in, in, we live in an environment, brothers and sisters. And I'm not trying to be overly negative. I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket upon our worship, but I'm just stating the reality that we live in certainly perilous, desperate times. And the constraints of sexual, our sexual constraints have come off. And that's why we find today uh, a a denomination that used to be so strong, the PCA, struggling with the revoice and same-sex attraction. Who would have thought 10 years ago that that would actually be an issue in that church? It would not have been me. And yet it is. But it's not just that church. It's something that is prevailing Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches. There is a, uh, a campaign, almost militaristic campaign, to see all of these religious institutions fall on their knees before the idol of sexuality. Let me address this deviant, sinful practice in four ways. The first way I want to address this problem is 
look at it as an identity problem. It's an identity problem. And, and here's what I mean by this. It is this, 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 it's the idea of like a identity politics, the name of the game today. It's the preferred method of our two major political parties to win elections. It's the mechanism by which the enemies of Christ are compromising the church and the gospel. Identity politics, it, 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 this is what I mean by identity politics. It's no longer is it just okay to be a Christian. We identify ourselves as homosexual. I'm a homosexual Christian. Or I'm a feminist Christian. Or I'm a patriarchal Christian. Or, you know, and this is, a, this is a benign way. This is a benign description. Well, I'm a reformed Christian. You know, we use the label reformed Christian to what? To, to, to give a, a really accurate description of what we believe and what we hold to doctrinally. If you use this idea of, uh, or this, this title or name to identify the you know, homosexual Christian, it's really what you're doing is you're identifying a practice. Even though you may be celibate, like the gentleman that stood up on the floor of General Assembly of the PCA last year and said, I am a Christian, but I am also a homosexual, though I'm celibate. You are in a very real way identifying your sexual proclivities. And I asked the question, why is that important? Because now we have a group saying, well, we're, we are... Christian polygamists. You see, it's an identity problem. Anytime you have to take something that you desire, something that you want to indulge in, and you put it in the, as in the title of, of your faith and practice, brothers and sisters, you have an identity issue. And you have to ask yourself, why is it important that you know these things about me? And the Bible never does that. We're called believers. We're called the disciples of Jesus Christ. We're called Christians and we're called followers of Christ. All given the, the clear implication and expression that what? That we who claim to, uh, to uh, we who profess Jesus Christ are His learners. Followers, We're here following the doctrine and the practices and the teachings of, of God in Christ. According to Scripture, and of course I'll have to deal with that in a moment. Christians, no matter what they have been, no matter what they come out of or, or what they have this, in, this idea, this lust, this indulgence to do, should be only, should only identify themselves with one thing. Open your Bibles to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Here's what I want us to do this morning as we consider this apologetic against polygyny. I want us to think about the ways in which we identify ourselves and then I want us to consider what Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Galatians. But may it never be, or your translations may say, God forbid, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Does everybody see that? That's your identity. It's not the movements. It's not the fads. It's not the, the, the sex, the S-E-C-T-S, the sex that come up claiming to have an, a, a better interpretation or a fringe interpretation, whatever it may be, the question must always come down to how is it 
as a Christian, where is the cross in my life? And that I should boast in nothing but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's at the cross that my sins have been nailed to by Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I can tell you this, but all the lust that rages in my own heart, I could be identified in a thousand different ways. But why would I want that? Why would you want that? Why not be identified in the one who has shown us the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love and offered and sacrificed his own, his own life so that we would not suffer the great wrath and judgment of God. I guess my point is simply this, brothers and sisters. Whatever you think defines you, and in this case, someone who might consider themselves as a Christian polygamist, it takes away from the cross of Christ. Because you are identifying yourself as that which is more important in you than the shed blood of Christ for your own life. Now, brothers and sisters, there are five marks that ought to characterize every professing Christian. I'm going to give them to you. Five marks. And these are important to the apologetic. The first mark is worship. Worship. And what I mean by worship, I mean gathering with God's people, not just with people who, who believe like I do, but I mean believe like I do doctrinally and Christianly and biblically, but not, not according to these habits, not according to these indulgences or these gratifications, but according to Scripture under the ordained ministry of God's men gathering with God's people to worship God. Why is that important? Because that is an act that God is ultimate in your life. When you set aside the Lord's Day to come and to be with God's people, you put off work, you put off entertainment, you put off all different kinds of luxury and, and pleasure in order to separate yourself unto God. What you are testifying to in the world that you're living is, is that God is ultimate to me. Secondly, obedience. It's not simply worship, but it's worshiping according to God's commandments. God has dictated and commanded how we should worship Him. He's dictated what we should believe. He's commanded us to believe certain things and to hold to those things. And we don't have the privilege and prerogative to put those things away. Which we will see in a minute. Worship. God is ultimate. Obedience defines our love. If you love me, you will obey me. Thirdly, holiness. God is holy. And so should we be holy. When we talk about holiness, we have to discuss morality. And where does that morality come from? Is that morality that we hold to the consensus of the masses, of the educational institutions, or the religious institutions? If the church says this practice is okay at this point in time in history and not okay at this point in time, do what, where do we gain our morality? Where do we get it? We must get it from God, who is the only Sovereign and Lord of any man's conscience. Fourthly, trust. You know why we are able to set aside the Lord's Day and not agonize over the money we lose and not agonize over all the various things? Well, we're missing out on going to the lake. We're missing out on fishing. We're missing out on all these things we think we need to do. When we take and we set aside a day of what the Bible calls rest in God, we are trusting our God to meet our every need. We're trusting Him. That my God can take six days of labor and multiply my work and multiply my use of my money. He can bless it. The Bible says that the man who, who distrusts God has holes in his pockets. 
He doesn't have God's blessing. Fifthly, responsibility. Responsibility is us taking every facet of our lives and living in those responsibilities in a way that glorifies God. Now, brother, that's the first five commandments. It's the first five commandments. Thou to mark us all. Okay? Those divine moral commandments that ought to mark God's children, and not some identity, not, not some frivolous lust, indulgence that we find important to us or that we think may be important to the kingdom of God in general. And we have to be aware of the cultural climate, the cultural conformity. We should not minimize the, the pressure that our communities and cultures put upon us, our children, our marriages, our churches, Right? When things become the norm, it becomes harder to go against the flow, doesn't it? When things just become accepted and normal, no matter what it is, it becomes harder for God's people to walk in faithful obedience. And oftentimes we find just how well weak we are, not how strong we are. I mean, we, we exhibit strength sometimes, right? We're not completely weak. We're not completely helpless, but, you know, there are those moments and times that we find ourselves not saying what we ought to say, not doing what we ought to do, and, and well, not confronting something we need to confront. So we find that there are moments and, and laxities and weaknesses in our lives. This can be due to many community things like education, entertainment, making cultural pop icons sort of the, 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 the pulse of the day authority figures parents teachers pastors what happens when pastors compromise and accept these cultural norms and he begins to promote that and teach that or are are not discipline that in the church what happens right it becomes it spreads the trends of large segments of professing believers are associations of people giving up and just accepting it is what it is. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I've had these conversations, and I'm sure you have too, that, that, that even now, where, where 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I was talking with Christians, go, you know, I'm not sure, is, is, is homosexuality a sin? Is it, or is it, you know, but yeah, no, it shouldn't be in the church. I think it, Christianity should overcome it. Do you have it? Well, yeah, so what's the, what's the conversation like today? It's completely different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I'm thankful, listen to me, I'm thankful that there have been redeemed, saved people out of homosexuality who have come into the church. And you know what they're saying? This is not possible. It's not possible to be a homosexual and Christian. I'm praising God for those men and women. They have the strength and the fortitude that many believers don't have. And should. So we see there's an identity problem. The second way I want to address this, and we're going to look at these scriptures, is we find it's a moral problem. That's a moral problem. You may be told, or you may read, or you may see online anything that says, well, uh, polygyny is never condemned in the Bible. Is not true. It is condemned. Go back to Genesis 2. We're going to look at Genesis 2, Genesis 4, and Genesis 6. And this is what I want to show you. This is, this is a train of thought and a train of events that I want to show you that Moses put together in order to teach against this practice. When we see right there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and following... That God saw fit in His wisdom to give Adam a suitable helper for him. And that God made woman out of the rib of Adam's side and gave woman to him in marriage, in a covenant marriage. 
Adam acknowledging in verse 23 that, that this unity has taken place. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is called woman because she is taken out of man. Adam acknowledges this, this unity, this one flesh relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh, one person. That's the, the idea of unity. And you young people, you know, this is good for you because when you consider your future, your future husband and wife, you must understand that it's not just going to be a contract. Like many people say today, well, marriage is a simple contract. It's not a contract. It's not just an agreement where two people come together and say, okay, I'll wash the clothes. Okay, I'll take out the trash. Good. Signed. Done. That's not a marriage. That's not a marriage. That's a contract. That's agreement. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant union where two people become one for one spouse to hurt the others to hurt himself or herself. And when there's not that sensitivity and emotion involved, something's wrong. That's what, that's what Paul brings out in Ephesians 5. Does a man mistreat his wife and not hurt himself? Absolutely not. Does a wife mistreat her husband and not hurt herself? Absolutely. Why? Because it's a one flesh relationship. It's special. It's important. The commandment is right there. It's a moral commandment. What do I mean by moral commandment? When we say something is moral, we mean two things. Or at least in this situation, we mean two things. What are they? Number one, it's universal. It's universal. God here has instituted covenant marriage between what? One man and one woman. If God wanted man to have multiple wives, He could have easily created them and given them. And guess what would have... If He would have done so, what would be the moral law? What would be the moral norm? Polygyny. But he didn't do that. Or if he had created Eve and multiple husbands for Eve, what would have been the moral norm? Polyamory or polyandry. But he didn't. God in His wisdom created the earth and He created all the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and He created man and woman and He joined man and woman in His infinite glorious wisdom. God knew that this marriage covenant would be for their benefit and good when done righteously. That cannot be overlooked. This is a moral positive law. It's universal. The second thing that a moral law is, it's binding. Now, when I say universal, how do we know, how do we, what do we see practiced throughout the whole world? Monogamy. Where does monogamy come from? Here in Scripture. Why do we have universally the simple practice of one man being joined to one woman? Primarily. More so than polygamy. Because this is the universal norm and moral that marriage is between one man and one wife. The second thing is binding. It's binding. That is, now God's not telling everybody they have to get married. He's not commanding any of you young people to marry, but He is commanding if you marry, it'll be this way. If you choose to marry, you're going to marry according to God's terms. And you're going to practice and keep that marriage according to the moral dictates and principles of God. This is a union that, that God blesses. It's a union that He created it's so powerful, verse 24 tells us that it is for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. That's powerful. There's a breaking of the families between the man and the woman. And they will come together. Think about it. Adam didn't have parents. Adam had no father and mother. 
Eve didn't have a father and mother. Notice how prophetic this is. What what Adam is saying and what Moses is writing is that this union, this, this, this communion, this covenant of communion and companionship between a man and a woman will be so strong. It will be the, the, the leaving and cleaving of one family to create another that is special and holy in God's sight. When Moses wrote this, when Moses wrote this, what's the context? What's the circumstance? The context is this. They are coming, they've come out of Egypt. They have been slaves for 400 years. They have now, they're about to enter into the promised land and they're about to go into a land that practices all kinds of deviant sexual things. And throughout Deuteronomy and Exodus, God says, don't pick up their ways. Don't pick up their practices. So it would be wise for Moses to sit down and say, let me explain to you how it all started. Let me explain to you what real covenant marriage is and not what you see practiced among the Gentiles and the pagans. Let me show you where it all began. It began when God created the heavens and the earth and God creating you. Why? Because there were already various forms of, of, of creation stories out there that were wrong. And Moses is setting the record straight. He's writing the Pentateuch in the context of, of, poly, uh, of polytheism and polyandry and polyamory and all these sexual practices, deviant sexual practices. And so Moses, it's important for Moses to say, here's where marriage began. And that's important. What Moses is saying is, this is the norm. God has shown us the norm. God has shown us His will, His moral will in making Adam and creating Eve out of the side of Adam. This is the norm. Now turn to Genesis 4. Now I've got to move quickly because what I want to do in these last 10 minutes is I want to show you the... the, the, the the, the process of thought here in Moses. First of all, he's established the moral positive law of monogamy. Secondly, now he addresses the line of Cain and he brings out polygamy. This is the first time multiple marriages are ever mentioned in the Bible. Now you can minimize that and say, oh well, no big deal. But what's a big deal about it is we have a man of the line of Cain that is indulgent. He's indulgent. Notice what the Bible says. And out of Cain, or verse 16, then Cain went out of the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and he called the name of the city Enoch. After the name of his son, now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the, the father of Mahajel, and Mahajel became the father of, Methu, of Methuselah, and Methuselah became the father of Lamech, and Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jubal, or, or to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain and the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech had, had said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Now I'm going to stop there. What Moses is doing is he's showing us, here's the godly line, here's God's intention and purpose and moral commandment, and now here's the line of Cain, the line of indulgence, the line of gratification. The line that won't do what God says to do. The line that says... I will do it my way. 
and I will do things my way. And that's what we see. We see Lamech. You know, I go into great description in the other sermon about what the names mean and whatnot, and we don't have time for this. But I want to say this. Polygamy is put in the worst light here. Moses is connecting the practice of polygamy with the sinful line of Cain. And he is demonstrating that this practice is a practice of fleshly indulgence and not of God, not of the Spirit. We have to move on. Genesis 6. Now you have the practice of polygamy coming into the scene. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, and that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also, he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days also. Afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them and they were mighty men who were of old men of renown and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth he was grieved in his heart and the Lord said I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And there, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God and Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now I'm going to start stop there because I want to contrast Lamech with Noah. Now this is how you ought to read your Bibles. See, God doesn't spell out everything in detail. He wants us to read His Word. He wants us to think about it. He wants us to make connections. And look, you have you have Lamech, the line of Cain, evil, wicked, a murderer, an indulgent man. Notice what he said: "I killed a boy." For wounded me, I killed him. It, 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 this, is the, this is the illustration. You spit on my foot, I stab you. Indulgent. Uncontrollable. What had become of the earth before God flooded it? Indulgence. What are we, what's the picture there that I just read? There, that, that, that most... The, the land had become so fleshly, so, in, so sensual, so indulgent. God has been put off. The church is regulated to eight people. I love what Alfred Edersheim said. No polygamist was on the ark. God didn't spare one polygamist. In fact, the man that God said was righteous was monogamous. And each of his three sons were monogamous. It's important. Let's go to a, let's go to Malachi chapter two and end there with a few things. Malachi chapter two. Why is this important? Well, brothers and sisters, what's going on in Malachi? God is, is is now you know God is bringing sort of his his um, his wrath upon his people, but he's explaining why he's doing it. He's saying, "Here's the problem I have," and if you read the book of Malachi, you'll find that the the, the people of God had quit tithing; they had quit attending to the temple they had quit doing the things of God and now in chapter 2 God begins to address the priests the leaders and in verses 1 through 9 he basically condemns them by preaching one thing and living another they preach the truth they actually preach sound doctrine 
But they lived out something totally different. They did not keep the things that they preached. God condemned them severely. In, chapter, in verse 10 through 13, or in verse 10 through 13, God has to deal with and address the way people treat one another. He says, now notice, look at verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Are we not all kin and related covenantally and spiritually? Is not God our Father? Has not one God created all of us? Why do you deal treacherously each against his brother as so to profane the covenant of the fathers? You can see what God is saying. Look, it's no small matter to mistreat one another. He said, I mean, God, here's, here's the, the prophet speaking for God saying, listen, do you not understand as you mistreat one another, you are profaning the covenant of God? Because God is their father too. They are your brothers and sisters. The Lord loves them too. But notice what they did, brothers. Look at this. He says, look at verse 12. This is serious. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. What he's saying is this. You go and you mistreat your brothers and then you come right back to worship and you offer something to me. Objection. Cut you off. Don't go live in rebellion. And this is important to the sin of polygyny. Don't go live in lustful rebellion and then come to worship and expect me to receive your worship. Now verse 13. This is another thing. This is not all they were doing wrong. They weren't just mistreating one another. They were mistreating their wives. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because you, He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. You see what God, God says? Look, you come in here and you weep and you moan because I haven't blessed you. But you're not correcting your sin. Yet you say, listen, listen, what, this is exactly what the person, Lord, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You see, the Lord saw everything in private. The Lord heard every argument. The Lord heard every time you, you, you talked down to her, you, you cussed at her. Everything, the Lord heard all the conversations. And the Lord rejects the worship of that man who comes, who thinks he's going to worship God and treat his wife in a very sinful, unloving, uncharitable, unfaithful way. It says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is the companion and the wife by covenant and your wife by covenant. You know, the Apostle Peter brings us out. He says, why are your prayers hindered, men? Because you mistreat your wives. You want God to answer your prayers, but you won't, you won't be faithful to your own marriage covenant. You won't keep your word, but you want me to keep mine. Verse 15, he says, but now... Not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Now, this is a very hard verse. I'm going to try to work through it. Notice, but not one who's done so has a remnant of the Spirit. I think the idea here, and I'm, I'm going off several commentators, the idea here is that the Spirit of God, well, none of that is according to the Spirit of God. And I think there's an application here to to polygyny and polygamy that the Spirit's not leading anybody to practice polygamy because you're dealing with your spouse in a treacherous way, even if she approves it. Even if she would approve of it. He says, but no one, he says, um, but not, 
one has done so has the remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Now, that's interesting because we don't know exactly. The Hebrew doesn't tell us who he's speaking of, though rabbis and others think they may be talking about Abraham. You know, Abraham had two wives, right? And you know what's so, what, is, what do people want to do when they want to justify their indulgence? They want to point to somewhere in the Bible and go, well, what about you know, Abraham had multiple wives? David had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives. Why can't I have multiple wives? But notice, interestingly, how the Scriptures handle that. Did, Mo, did, did Abraham sin by having two wives? Yes, he did. But his sin was not necessarily one of indulgence like theirs. What was connected to Abraham taking Hagar and going into her so that she might have a, a seed, the promised seed? Remember, Sarah believed she was barren, wasn't going to have a child. And what did she do? She gave her husband Hagar so that they may have a seed. Now look at the text because I believe this is what it's talking about. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? He says, I want you to think about that. Before you use Abraham as an example for your infidelity, for your unfaithfulness and treachery, take heed then to your spirit. Take heed to your heart, your lusts. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of you. Look, don't use, don't use the Bible in situations to indulge your sinfulness. Well, I've addressed the identity issue. I've addressed the moral issue. But I want to close with this. I, I, I know it's been a long sermon. I know that. But I have to, I have to close with a few comments to those who may be thinking about this. To, to the man or the woman considering this lifestyle, I would tell you to repent of that idea. I would say to you, lay yourself before Scripture, the Word of God, before godly people who know how to handle the Word of God because there are websites that take passages like what I've read to you and, and to try to prove polygyny. And honestly, it's almost like a 10-year-old wrote the exegesis. They are shallow, they are immature, and they are just rift with error. I would tell that person to be careful Rethink this. Seek out godly counsel. Seek out godly men that can help you with this. I would say to the husband who may be considering this lifestyle and putting his wife in harm's way, the wife of his companionship, I would tell him to repent of his sin. Repent of this sin lest great judgment fall upon your life. To not repent of this sin is to treat your wife in a horrible manner. To treat your wife treacherously. She is a sister of the Lord. She is a child of the covenant. She is a companion of your youth, the Bible says. She is your own flesh and blood. Why would you treat her in such unfaithfulness? To the wife that is caught in this sin unwillingly, consider divorce. If your husband will not give up the practice of polygyny, you are free to leave him, to divorce him, to take the children from him. And to seek out as much monetary compensation as you can get from him in order to live comfortably and raise those children in a manner that's becoming of a Christian. 
If you are isolated and alone, if you've been segregated and there is no one around, I would say seek out a ministry, a Bible-believing ministry, a pastor that can help you. If you are... Um, if you are around mostly people that hold to this idea, separate from them. It's dangerous. I wouldn't have my kids around it. Separate your kids. Do whatever you have to do to remove yourself from this grievous violation of God's moral law. Seek out a church, a minister, some organization to help you get out of that situation. If you are in a church that condones this practice or thinks that it's okay, Leave that church immediately and find a faithful one. My guess is these kind, this group and groups like this are not in churches. They're too pure for churches. Churches are too too, uh, compromised for them because they end up, they, they are the type of people that are the purists and the ones who really have the truth and no one else does. That's the, those are the marks of cults not Christianity. Let's pray.